evening. Welcome. I'll tell you, this study is overwhelming. And if you're trying to read along, um, I hope you're overwhelmed too. Doesn't sound like any of you are. I mean, there is so much, so much. Today I was just reading uh, some overviews and just all the, the ways that people jockey for positions and in the, in the priesthood and the emperors. It's just, it's an ongoing soap opera, century after century after century. So uh, I have done my best to whittle down for today. I've got my Bible like I'm going to read that. I have it over there in case I need it. You can always kind of do this. You know, that's there. That's the word. Uh, it's there, I promise. Uh, yeah, if you brought yours, yeah, I hope you get to use it. But uh, let's uh, open the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the freedom to gather in your name and to uh, to think and dwell upon Christ. Ever, all this history we look at, it, so, in some strange way, goes back to, to salvation, points back to Jesus. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I pray that as we look at it tonight, that we would learn. And what we learn would be to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I feel, uh, like I said, overwhelmed. And uh, I hope what I have put together, um, amazing what I choose to, to teach is how I just, I could choose something easier, but this is what I did. Um, so uh, uh, anyway, I'm just nervous that, you know, what I have and what I put together is, is, is going to be okay with you. So hang in there. It's history, a lot of names, it's going to be names you've heard of, names you haven't heard of. Promise me that when you hear of these names that you've never heard of, that uh, after tonight you'll remember that you heard them, and you'll do something with them. Uh, we're looking at the High Middle Ages, High Middle Ages, uh, which is around uh, 1,000 to 1350 to 1400-ish, and we're on the edge of the Crusades. The Crusades, bloody as they were, horrible as they were, there was some good in them. Uh, the Crusades brought back the knowledge of Muslim and Greek cultures. They went over to a, an area of the world and dealt with people. Uh, though it was horrible and bloody, uh, they learned things. Non-clerical men sought out teachers, which became the beginnings of European universities. Earnest men rose up from the rising corruption in a back-to-the-Bible movement. People like the Waldensians. By the way, that's where my name comes from. I don't have a blood lineage from the Waldensians, but that's where my name is. Uh, the Franciscans, the Dominicans, so if you have a, uh, a Catholic background, you know who those folks are. Uh, it will all kind of culminate in what we call the Renaissance, or rebirth of the classical Greek ideas of the West. We'll see basic people where they, where they go into, the, into areas and they come back with this culture of Plato, which Plato thought as a philosopher, and really this is a great summary of him, but that would just be his philosophy was based on ideas, ideas. Different from Aristotle, who believed everything comes from the senses, the five senses. You get this, you feel that, you see that, you touch that. That's how we learn things. Plato was more ideas. Uh, Aristotle was more that which is reality. And then new art depicting reality. And I've just shown you a couple of, a couple of different, uh, some of the architecture. High Middle Ages were a time of economic revival for the Western world. The economic and intellectual vitality reflected a new form of church building invented at this time. The older form of architecture is now called Romanesque, namely a circular Roman arches and bulky, dimly lit buildings. Note the circular Roman arches and the few windows with dark interior. That's the old Romanesque ones, dark and dingy, replaced uh, by Abbot Sugar, a really sweet guy, of the monastery. <laughs> a little slow, a little slow. <laughs> The monastery of Saint. I'm sorry, that's such a dad joke. But uh, he introduced a new style of tall buildings, tall church buildings with pointed arches and lots of windows to flood the interior with light. These Gothic buildings, Gothic architecture. There's Canterbury Cathedral. That's two different pictures side by side. Um, this is um, the Gothic architecture of the West Westminster Abbey. Anyone ever been to Westminster Abbey? Uh, Gothic architecture of the Notre, Notre Dame Cathedral. Such buildings took decades to build. The designer would often not live to see the building completed, which is kind of sad, isn't it? But imagine, I mean, that construction even today would take a while. Back then, know what we have today, what they didn't have then. And yet the, the beauty, the, the brilliance of it, the engineering. So out of this period stems what's called scholasticism. Scholasticism comes from, uh, it kind of began, we might say it began in the... Uh, and the monasteries, monasteries uh, where the men would go and study. Some would study. Others were, were told not to study. The, uh, 
Uh, we'll look at Francis of Assisi. The Franciscans were told nothing, no Bible, no nothing. Uh, the Dominicans were, were students, however. Uh, Dominicans not from the Dominican Republic, but from St. Dominic, uh, who started his own, uh, I don't know what's the word for it, say line of, of monasteries, but uh, uh, scholasticism coming out of the ashes of the Crusades and um, the ineptitude of, of, of many of the peoples who had been kept illiterate are now going to begin to study, and the Bible begins to be studied. It moves from the monasteries into the cathedrals, and then later on into their own church buildings. So we're going to take a look at a few people in scholasticism. Let's define it first. Uh, number one, a reconciling of philosophy and theology using dialectical reasoning. <laughs> Some of you already get lost. You mathematicians are gone. Actually, the mathematicians are good. Uh, it's the, uh, the grammarians here. Uh, reconciling philosophy. You've got theology, the study of God, philosophy, the study of ideas, study of God and God's revelation to man, philosophy of ideas, platonic type stuff, using a dialectical reasoning. Yes, no, maybe so, putting it out there, bullying it with a bunch of questions and trying to figure out if it's real. There's an auker, in this case would be the Bible, a sinchai, sententiae, I should say. These are Latin words, which I'm not good at. Uh, these would be statements that contradict the Bible. What does the Bible say? What are some statements that contradict the Bible? The Bible is created in six days, according to uh, the Bible. And uh, others might say, no, it took millions, maybe billions of years. Okay, what do we do with that? Let's put those together. Deal with it. Uh, the use of philology, which is the love of words, different from philosophy. Philology, it's a great word to say. It's to study word nuances and logic to make one's case. Everything relies on words. When you get into the academics of things, it's about words, especially when you're a preacher. Words mean something, don't they? Um, to, to slip in or to fail to say no or not of something can change the whole dynamic of, of something. I've, I've come away from many sermons and had people, too many sermons, and people say, you said Peter, you meant Paul. He said, I picked that up, not everyone might have. Well, there's nothing I can do about it now. I mean, it's been done. I mean, I'm, it happens. A lectio was presented, which was a simple reading of the text. Then a dis disputatio, a dispute ensued. Teachers had to answer the disputes and draw conclusions by the following day. This was scholasticism. Aren't you glad you came tonight? Can we prove the existence of God by logic and reason so that we can prove his existence to a person just like we can prove 2 plus 2 equals 4? If we can prove this this equation, 2 plus 2 equals 4, it's right all the time. It's easy. Can we prove the existence of God the same way, philosophically? Can we use logic, reason, philosophy, and science to push back the boundaries of mystery in the Christian religion? Anyway, all those things that we, that we don't quite understand about the Bible, that makes no sense to us. Can we use these philosophical ideas to actually understand those mysteries? And get rid of the mysteries altogether. That's essentially what the question is asking. Is it possible that some truths God reveals to us might appear illogical or even contradictory when we examine them strictly in light of reason and logic? In other words, the Trinity say, can we look at that reasonably and logically and find out that it's not true at all? Is that possible? Some were frightened by that. Some were frightened by the attempt to do that because that might actually prove that God doesn't exist in some way. Is your faith or my faith strengthened if someone can give you a reasoned explanation for what you only take by faith? I mean, that's the way I was as a kid. I asked questions. My, uh, my dad, I can remember specifically my dad saying, we just believe that. It's just what we believe. Believe it. You know, that's, that's all God asks. Okay. But I still had questions. I wanted to know why. Can, can we prove this? I need to know why do people say the Bible is true? Why, why do we know that Jesus resurrected from the grave when we weren't there? Uh, who, who saw it? Is it, is it true? Because I, not because I had a, a skeptical mind, but because I was meeting people that had skeptical minds. Why do they believe that? Where, where do they come up with that? Um, I've always believed that. Why don't they believe it? And I heard of atheists. I heard one guy who was an evangelist. He said, I went up to this renowned atheist, and I said, look, I've got to at least give this a try. And I remember thinking that the atheist must be so high and above Christian, the Christian, because he or she knows so much, the Christian is just going to kind of beg him to try to believe. I didn't like that. I hated that. Uh, as, a, as an arrogant man, I thought I'm never going to believe in something that I have to cower and to try to apologize to somebody to believe. And so I was asking these questions. It wasn't until I met the woman who would become my wife where I even knew there were answers to such questions. I mean, she gave me a book years ago. I was asking it before we were married, and she said, oh, here, read this. And she gave me Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. 
I was never the same, never have been since. And then my in-laws, her parents, gave me uh, books on the Genesis flood and the, the science of creation, and I've never been the same. I mean, there's, uh, I learned that uh, that itch that I had was scratched by good research. Uh, my faith was strengthened. So before the high Middle Ages, Christians believed that God reveals truths about himself to us through his word. Truths like, tell me if you believe these, his existence, the Bible believes this. The Bible, Bible reveals this, I should say. The Trinity, the triunity of God, we might say. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, existing eternally. That sin separated man from God. That God became man. In the high Middle Ages, Christians believed that we can prove some, if not all of the truths of Christian doctrine, by reason. In other words, we don't need the Bible. Some were wondering, do we even need the Bible to prove these things? And many thought, we need reason, we can take the Bible out. Not that they necessarily wanted to get rid of the Bible, but they wanted to be able to use reason altogether. And that you think, well, that's okay, all right. But that has manifested itself in the modern day uh, to the point where in universities, uh, in the large majority, 99.9% of them, uh, they take this thought and say, you don't need a Bible. You don't need God's Word. In our discussion of this, we need to distinguish between reason and revelation very carefully. And so I'll attempt to do that very, very carefully. Number one, Revelation, uh, it is a book of the Bible, but when we talk about it here, this is what God reveals. The word means to reveal. What does God reveal from his word? The Bible. Yet nature itself also reveals God, and the Bible tells us that. You can look out at the world, you don't need a Bible, and say, this is pretty beautiful. This is pretty amazing. Uh, everything is uh, somewhat, uh, it's non-chaotic. It works. I'm looking out at the field right there at beautiful uh, sunflowers, at grass that turns green and turns, turns uh, uh, brown and then, and then does it again. And wind and rain, it waters the ground. Flowers come up, they go down. Every, everything works. It's amazing. There's some order in the universe. How does that happen? Have you ever heard of any of, of uh, there being order coming from chaos? That an explosion actually settles down and creates something better? It's unscientific. It doesn't work that way. So anyone can look out and say, uh, this is amazing. Something or someone uh, is bigger than this and made this. The Bible reveals that everyone knows there is a God. That person may have dulled his or her senses severely through sin and may be seeking to deny that there is a God. But deep down inside, they know there is a God. And anyone who comes to you and says there is no God, they usually don't come up with a yeah, I don't believe in God. They don't usually say it with a smile. It's usually, I don't believe there's a God. They're angry. You can detect it in their voice. And you're thinking, I never go up to anyone and say, I don't believe in unicorns. <laughs> you wonder, if you don't believe in God, why are you so angry? Really, your better thing of an atheist, an atheist saying that is better off saying, I know there's a God and I hate him. That would be, that's really what they're saying. Why do you get angry about something that doesn't exist? You're all angry about proving something that doesn't exist and because he made you so angry, but he doesn't exist. Is it likely that a very well-educated person would be able to discern God's existence from natural revelation better than an uneducated person? In other words, an uneducated person and an educated person looking out at the, the world, is it, is it likely that one could figure it out over the other? Not necessarily. It's common sense. We all have... Common sense, there's something beyond us. Whereas reason, by reason we mean some logical process by which we might prove beyond a reasonable doubt that God exists. Okay, that's philosophy. We're trying to prove that God exists without using the Bible. I can say, well, God exists because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if you're talking to someone that says, well, I don't believe in the Bible, why are you using that to tell me there's a God that exists? That's a circular argument. You're using God to prove God. Well, on the other hand, their circular argument's the same way. They're, you, they're starting with God and saying there is no God. So it's almost as circular. But by reason, we're going someplace without the Bible to use reasonable thoughts. Why? My, I did a, my dissertation on reason and logic, or at least a good portion of it, as to why do we need to be reasonable and use logic? Why? Who says? Who says that we need that we have a conversation? And I mean it. Who says that when you have a conversation, it has to be reasonable and logical? Why can't we speak in gibberish? Why can't we use contradictory phrases 
and say, I was at the movies, I wasn't at the movies. I ate a sandwich, I ate a steak. And you're arguing with your spouse, and your spouse goes, you're not being reasonable. And you can fight back and say, who says we have to be reasonable? Really, who says? The, it, it's a first thing. It's one of those, what we call a first thing. It's something we take to be true without ever even discussing it. Our playing field is reason and logic. Why? That's the question of, of, of an apologist saying, why do we start with reason? Why does an atheist begin to make their arguments that there is no God using reason and logic? What gives him or her the right to start with reason and logic? That's our argument. And it's our argument because God has always existed and reason and logic exist as long as he exists. But in an atheistic world, where does reason and logic come from? Number one, it's not materialistic. And all atheists are materialistic. You have to have something that you can touch that's real. Logic and reason are not real, yet they're using it. Why? They're stealing from God's foundation, from God's point of view, from our point of view. They're stealing our arguments to make an argument against us. Are you with me? No, you're not. (laughs) By reason, we mean a logical process that everyone can agree is a valid process, that anyone can use to convince someone else of the truth of the proposition proven. We're just using basic reason, and, and we don't have to discuss. We don't start our conversation and go, okay, are we going to use reason? Even the question begets a reasonable response. Even the, the order of the words, are we going to use reason? Why use them like that? Why not jumble them all up and use them in a different order? Who gets to say? What's that? Because it's not reasonable. Circular argument, isn't it? So, but we all, this is, these are what we call first things. We always begin with reason, and as Christians, we know why. As atheists, they don't know why. Their world makes no reasonable sense. It all got here by accident. There was a big explosion, and it made everything orderly, non-chaotic. That's not scientific. Don't ever let an atheist tell you you're non-scientific. They're unscientific. They have no argument. They're borrowing from logic and reason that God created, and if at the very least, they can't, they can't tell you where it came from. How does everything that explodes out of nothing and it creates everything, how does logic and reason come about that's not even materialistic? Where does that come from? Where does love come from? Where does hate come from? Those are not materialistic. All right, you good? And this is what our discussion is tonight. Scholasticism was a movement of Christian scholars who sought to prove Christian doctrine with logic using church tradition, revelation, and reason. Some notable scholastics. Tell me if you've heard of this guy, Anselm. Okay, you can put saint in front of him if you want, Saint Anselm. Peter Abelard. I, I cut off Peter Lombard, but uh, um, I didn't want you to get confused with it. Thomas Aquinas. Most people. And William of Ockham. You ever heard of Ockham's Razor? Yeah, all right. You've heard of Ockham's Razor. You don't know why, but there it is. And by the way, I've got it spelled three or four different ways. Actually, you can spell it with O-C-C-A-M or O-C-K-H-A-M. So don't, don't call me out on it. I know it. I tried to go through and make it all uniform, but I realized I never changed this one. So Anselm, we'll start off with him. He grew up in, uh, I think it's Aosta, Italy, but fled to Lefranc, who that's a man, by the way, uh, at Beck of Normandy. And so that little, uh, that ancient uh, monastery there on the right, and then the other one is uh, Aosta, Italy. Uh, 1133 or 1033 to 1109 is when he lived. He believed that you must believe before you can understand. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive God's spirit, and then you will understand. That was his montage. Believe I was, in fact, my neighbor, many of you know my neighbor, comes to church here, and he was asking me all these questions, and he's into logic and everything. I said, believe so that you might understand. Believe. It's not illogical. I'm not illogical. The people I know who believe in Christ are not illogical. Believe, and all those questions will begin to come to fruition. You'll begin to understand them. He did. He's continuing to understand. He sought to see just how much scriptural truth he could prove by the reasoning process. He didn't want to just say, just believe it by faith. He wanted it all to make sense reasonable and thought it could. Curdeus Homo was his book on why God became man. That's Latin. For those of you who know Latin, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation. 
He used the best intellectual tools of the day to prove Christian doctrine, espousing what we call the ontological argument for God's existence. Now, I have sworn not to put any of you through the ontological arguments, except a couple. Just so you can get a little taste of the ontological argument. I love the ontological argument, even though I don't even understand it completely. But I understand Anselm's. Uh, He and and his students at the monastery wanted to see just how much of the scriptural truth they could prove with the reasoning process. His ontological argument has provoked debate since the day he published it, back in in the 11th century. It has the enigmatic quality of sometimes seeming to work. I think it always works. How many of you ever heard of a guy named Bertrand Russell? Bertrand Russell, he's a, he's a staunch agnostic, or was anyway. Uh, but he's a Christian. He's not a Christian today. He believes in God now. He's long since passed, but he, he, he knows there's a God now. Yeah, Mark? Ontological is a, it's, it's a metaphysics. It's first things. Ontos, ontology is about first things. Uh, and so it, it's actually kind of difficult to, metaphysics, if I said if it's like metaphysics, you'd go, oh, yeah, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> It, it's the first things is the best way to describe it. So Bertrand Russell, this agnostic of the day, he struggled with, with Anselm's argument. He says, one day in 1894, when I was walking along Trinity Lane, I saw in a flash, or thought I saw, that the ontological argument is valid. I had gone out to buy a tin of tobacco, on my way, and on my way back, I suddenly threw it up in the air and exclaimed as I caught it, Great Scott, the ontological argument is sound. I know it. Something crazy in that tobacco, wasn't it? <laughs> now, he never came to believe in God, but seeing the argument work, it, I, I give this to you so you can see people, uh, philosophers struggling with it. They think about it. Um, somebody who is it, Zach or Grant, you said you have a professor? Told, yeah, told your professor at Lone Star saying he, he knows he can disprove Anselm's ontological argument. Is that you that told me that? No one can disprove it. You can say you don't like it, but I'll give you a little bit of it. So I'm going to ask it in a different way than Anselm did. Would it be a contradiction to say that the greatest conceivable being was not omniscient? That is, all-knowing. Would it be a contradiction? Thank you. Yes. Yes, it would. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being must be omniscient. Think Anselm, he is thinking about the greatest conceivable being. That's what he's doing. He's got the greatest conceivable being in his mind, and he's saying, would it be a contradiction to say that he was not omniscient? That which something is so great has to be all-knowing. Would it be a contradiction to say that the greatest conceivable being was not omnipresent? Yes, it would be. It would be a contradiction. You see how I'm asking it. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being must be omnipresent. Would it be a contradiction to say that the greatest conceivable being was not omnipotent? That's all-powerful. Yes, it would. Therefore, the greatest conceivable, conceivable being must be omnipotent. Would it be a contradiction to say that the greatest conceivable being was created by something else? Yes, it would. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being must have created everything else. Would it be a contradiction to say that the greatest conceivable being does not exist? The greatest conceivable being could be great in our minds, but even greater is that he actually exists, right? Okay, so yes, it would. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being must exist, and there's the argument. This is not Anselm's exact form of questioning, but it's simply an illustration to similar to his reasoning. So that's how he's deducing this. Uh, this is called, the formal logic of, of, of his proof is called um, reductio ad absurdum. Uh, that's how you take an argument. By this proof method, you assume something is true, then you deduce the consequences of this assumption. If you can deduce the opposite of what you originally assumed, then the original assumption is incorrect. I'll just give you an easy example. Statements that have always, never, nobody, everyone would be examples of that. Lance never eats pizza with mushrooms on it. And yet, last night, went over to someone's house, and they had mushrooms on the pizza, and he ate it. Therefore, the logic of the proposition was wrong. I have it. I mean, I like it, 
but I did eat. And, and that's just, I didn't last night, nor, nor would I ever, but just an example. No. no, I would eat pizza with mushrooms, but not with olives. That's never going to be a day that I'm eating olives on my pizza. Thank you, Sharon. And for those of you who, are, who, who think I'm crazy, I'll be praying for you. The last olive I had I thought was a grape and a salad. And so, yeah, so now I've got this terrible aversion to grapes. Anselm says this, and so, Lord, now stay with me. This is tough. And so, Lord, we believe that thou art a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Or is there no such nature, since the fool has said in his heart that there is no God? But this very fool, when he hears of this being, of which I speak, a being than which nothing greater can be conceived understands what he hears, and what he understands is in his understanding, although he does not understand it to exist. That's what I told you. Hold on. Assuredly, that than which nothing greater can be conceived cannot exist in the understanding alone. For suppose it exists in the understanding alone. Then it can be conceived to exist in reality, which is greater. So if we just have it in our understanding, that's not good enough. It has to be reality. So if that than which nothing greater can be conceived exists in the understanding alone, the very being than which nothing greater can be conceived is one that which a greater can be conceived. But obviously this is impossible. Hence there is no doubt that there exists a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. And it exists in both the understanding and in reality. Okay. This is how he thought of God. Go ahead, Karen. I was going to say, if you put in that which nothing greater can be conceived as God instead of all those words. Yeah, well, we're talking about scholastics here. <laughs> so modern interpretation. Is it possible that there are some things that exist in the real world but don't exist as a concept in any human's mind? Is that possible? Yes. Example. Uh, this used to be true of radio waves and the moons of Jupiter. They were there. We didn't know it, but they existed. Surely there are still a myriad of things that exist that we have not yet experienced and cannot conceive. Is it possible that there are some things that exist in the concept of a person's mind, but do not exist in reality? <laughs> yes. Unicorns, mermaids. Y'all are enjoying Anselm's argument. Good. So if we summarize it, can we say that the source of existence does not exist? In Anselm's mind, no, you can't. When talking about God, uh, you're talking about a being that he is saying is necessary. His existence is necessary for our existence. Because you're taking everything back from a point in time, our day, and you're going back and you're going back to the, to the logical beginning. What began everything? How did this come from nothing? Who or what made it? He's saying it's logical. It's only, and it, it, it really, it's the ontological argument, if you're an apologist, it's all wrapped up within what's called the cosmological argument. It's better explained through the cosmological argument where you start, start at the beginning. And what was there in the beginning? You know, if you took everything in a, as this as a movie, as life as a movie, and you reversed it, and it all came back in this wide scope down to just a singularity, a single point, a BB, smaller than a BB, that's everything. It exploded into everything that we see, the universe, people. Where'd that BB come from? Where did that singularity come from? Who or what exploded it? How did it explode and come, become so orderly? Who can believe that nonsense? And Anselm is trying to get reasonably. Yes, we know God created the world. He believed in God. But let's look at this intellectually outside of the Bible. That's what he's trying to do. So can we say that the source of existence does not exist? No. Therefore, the source of existence does exist. Basically, Anselm is defining God as the source of existence. We exist, therefore God must exist. Uh, this was taken a bit further by Rene Descartes. Rene Descartes was kind of the same way. He took Anselm's ontological argument in a different direction, uh, and his is even more complicated, of which I will not bore you with tonight. Peter Abelard. How many of you heard of Peter Abelard? Okay, different than Peter Lombard. Peter Abelard. This is a... Apparently, he was a very good-looking man. He was a genius, especially at logic. He was proud, vain, and considered himself the best philosopher alive. Uh, we know this because that's what he says. 
And he probably was. He was argumentative, combative, and offended people wherever he went. I know all about that. I'm just not as smart. He considered disputation useful in sharpening the wits. He wanted to argue with people, but he felt it wasn't just for the sake of arguing. He wanted his wits sharpened and other people's. He, wanted, he didn't want people to say dumb things and, and believe dumb things. Let's sharpen each other. That's what he was about. I would just say he's probably exhausting. He argued with his professors, and he won. They didn't like him. No professor likes a smart aleck student that's smarter than they are. He fell in love with Heloise. Here she is, a little snapshot over here. He says this, Now there dwelt in that same city of Paris a, a certain young girl named Heloise, the niece of a canon who was called Fulbert. Her uncle's love for her was equaled only by his desire that she should have the best education which he could possibly procure for her. Of no mean beauty, she stood out above all by reason of her abundant knowledge of letters. It was this young girl whom I determined to unite with myself in the bonds of love. And indeed, the thing seemed very easy to me to be done. <laughs> I mean, why not? You're the smartest guy in the world. You look like him. So distinguished was my name. And I possessed such advantages of comeliness that no matter what woman I might favor with my love, I dreaded rejection of none. Ladies, how many of you are attracted to this? He wrote, our kisses far outnumbered our reasoned words. Our hands sought less the book than each other. This led to a child out of wedlock and castration. Her uncle sent his men to him at night, pinned him down. Took care of that problem. So what do you do? So what do you do? Afterward, he convinced Heloise to enter a monastery so that no other man could have her, and he became a monk. <laughs> see, see what I tell you? Th these things, these stories in history of the church, th these are great soap operas. This, is, this will make a great modern show. <laughs> Nuns were there before that. They were long before, before this. As a monk, Abelard became convinced that Christianity was the most reasonable of all religions, that Christ was the Logos, the foundation of logic. He was a Christian, by the way. Uh, he believed in Jesus. He, he set out, he was much like Anselm, but he was a little bit different. In fact, a lot different. Once Christianity had been proven by theorems of logic, he believed everyone would accept it, just like they accept 2 plus 2 equals 4. So it was, for him, it was, and that's what arrogant people do. Arrogant people believe, I can be smart enough, I'm smart enough, I can convince you, everything. I mean, I've had this argument with my wife for years, and you know, I've always figured that when she doesn't get it, she just... You just don't understand. And she told me one time, she said, maybe I do understand and I just don't agree with you. <laughs> That's impossible. Because if you understood what I was saying, you would know that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> I have said that for years. Which is arrogance. Look, everyone just needs to understand me. If you would understand me, then we would all live happily ever after. <laughs> Not the case. So Abelard said that nothing is to be believed until it is understood. That's different than, than Anselm. He believed that any Christian doctrine could be understood. You don't need to believe to understand Christian doctrine. Anselm believed faith is the most basic thing that we should have. If you can't achieve understanding, at least you can still have your faith. So they're, they're opposites here. Anselm, believe so that you might understand. Abelard, you can understand anything whether you believe it or not. For Abelard, understanding is the basic things we should all have. If you can't achieve faith, at least you can still have your understanding. Remember, back here, Anselm said, if you can't have understanding, you can still have your faith. Which one do you want more, faith or understanding? Okay, Abelard is, is a fleshly guy. As he studied the church fathers and scripture, he noted apparent contradictions. And, and you will if, if you read anybody. You, you, somebody says this interpretation about something and somebody says that. He notes that. Nothing gets by this guy, apparently. He wrote in his book, uh, which simply means yes or no or pro and con, a book in which he collected responses from the church fathers on 158 theological statements. Mind you, back then they didn't have internet and anything else to do except go through uh, page by page. When you're scholarly like these folks, you're going through everything and you're finding arguments to argue. And then you need people to talk about these arguments with. Abelard was eventually tried for heresy by Bernard of Clairvaux, um, 
which was a very gentle and kind man uh, at his trial. He was. Bernard was. Ab not necessarily Abelard, but uh, he had a strange view on the, the Trinity, uh, which is strange because he said that you can understand it outside of Scripture. Well, he couldn't. He didn't, I should say. At his trial, when he offered to show the reasons for what he believed, the archbishop said, we take no account of human reason or your sense of things, but only the words of authority. In other words, we are scared to death of your logic. You might convince us otherwise. They were afraid of him. Abelard's enemies were afraid of his bold confidence that reason could explain any mystery of the church. Um, and so I ask here, should, should, should they have been afraid? Should we be afraid? I mean, there was a time in my life when I thought, when I was getting in that, I thought, am I going to learn something that's going to destroy my faith? Um, I was pretty staunch in my faith at the time, but it was faith without a lot of understanding as to why I believe what I believe. I mean, I grew up Baptist. I never met a Baptist preacher that, that dared to tell me, here's why you believe what you believe. Um, but when I found people that, that had done those studies, uh, I also found others. Even Cheryl told me one time when I was doing my Hecan, Greek and he, my Hecan, Hecan Greek studies, she, I, would, I would tell her all the, tell the manuscript garbage you have to deal with. There's manuscripts that say this and manuscripts that say that. They say the same thing, but sometimes there's slips of the pen. Um, one, one good example I always use is Philippians 4.13. Quote it. I can do all things. Okay, I noticed you said Christ. Earliest manuscripts say him. It's a pronoun. So the earliest manuscripts say him. Later ones in the 9th and 12th century say Christ. Is it different? It's different, but it's the same thing. And so you've got these... And anyway, I would, I would try to explain to her, and she goes, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. That, that doesn't, I don't want to know that there's any contradiction. There's no contradictions. Uh, there's never been a contradiction. I would never believe in a Bible as inerrant if there were any contradictions. But people can become afraid. I don't know if I want to hear this argument. It might ruin my faith. I'll hear any argument. We should be bold enough or sound enough, I should say, in our faith to hear any argument to the contrary, any argument. Um, sadly, not enough people are sound in their faith and, and don't know it and don't, haven't even yet decided to believe everything that the Bible says. Some people are still struggling with just what the Bible says. You've got to get to the point where I believe everything that God's Word says. There's no contradictions. And then you kind of graduate to the, to the sixth grade at that point, spiritually speaking, to where you can go out, okay, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of nothing in the Bible. Let's get to the next level. After Abelard, Westerners came to believe that reason is superior to faith, revelation, or authority. There you go. And then today, many Westerners feel that everything must be explainable by reason. Even when we hear of miracles, we look for a reasonable explanation. That comes from Peter Abelard and, and what he spread in the church. Now, fine, I mean, we can reason, be reasonable about everything, but at some point, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the miracle of miracles. Uh, everything stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. People don't come back from the dead after they've been dead for three days. It's impossible. You can be resuscitated after 30, 45 minutes, maybe, with damage, but three days, three nights after crucifixion? No, it's a miracle. Disprove that, you disprove Christianity. Thomas Aquinas, you know, he was called the dumb ox. The dumb ox. He was a really large man. I don't mean fat, but apparently he was tall. Uh, his parents wanted him to do, be in ecclesiastical circles. Uh, high church type things. He wanted to be a scholar. And so they locked him in a castle for, uh, I think it was a month or even a year, and tried to, uh, even I read one account where a prostitute was put with him uh, to try to get him to um, capitulate. He wouldn't. He didn't. Uh, and people called, he was quiet. He was big. And people called him a dumb ox, which is strange because he could be the most brilliant man that ever lived. But he became a scholastic doctor of the church. Not a, not a medical doctor, but a, a doctor of philosophy and theology. The greatest of scholastics and philosophers. He claimed revealed truth cannot be contrary to reason. Reason and revelation are two roads to the same truth. You buy that? Nothing wrong with that statement, really. Reason and revelation. I'm putting revelation first. I mean, there are some things that people say are reasonable. They contradict revelation. When you look at that reason, today people say, they say it's science, follow the science. Well, science changes all the time. Science is just a word we use for observations and testing things. We observe this, 
we observe it again, we test it by research, we look at it. If at the end what we observed initially is the same thing, then we can say, this looks like truth. Uh, And yet science changes all the time. Science, science, science. Are Christianity and science at odds? Not at all. God created science. But what God has revealed, that's the truth. That's where we start. That's our foundation. Anything that says otherwise is probably not good science. And probably, I say very sarcastically, it's not. His Summa Theologica, anyone read that? Very few have. Fills more than 4,000 pages, and he died before he finished it. That's a man who can talk. According to Aquinas, anything that God reveals to us should not contradict our reason. Amen. Aquinas argued that natural reason is given to us by God. If revealed truths could be contrary to natural reason then God would be wicked, which he is not. Of course, people will say, well, it's not reasonable to say that man, someone could be dead for three days and come back to life. Is it not reasonable? Yet the whole story that surrounds it. So if you've got the, the, the resurrection of Jesus, he's, being resur- he's been resurrected, why? What's the reasonable explanation that Jesus would be resurrected? He's God. I mean, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable that he died on a cross Why would he die on a cross? He's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. That's reasonable. So even though the miracle might not be reasonable, the reasons for this miracle say everything. They're the most reasonable thing ever. He wrote over 8 million words, more than 20,000 pages. This is larger than a modern encyclopedia. He would dictate his works to scribes and would keep several going at the same time. What was I talking about with you? What's I talking about with you? That's what he did. John Calvin did much the same thing. One day during Mass, he had a vision. He said that what he had been shown so far surpasses everything he had ever taught, and it made it all seem like nothing. So right towards the end of his life, he has this vision, and all of everything he had written prior to that, he thought, oh, it's nothing. He didn't teach anymore, dying shortly thereafter. It's like God was saying, oh, no, 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 no. You're not writing anything else. That was not my vision. Time for you to come home. I think God sometimes brings people home early uh, to, to spare the rest of us. <laughs> With all due respect, Thomas Aquinas. So I don't know how well you can see this, this graph, but he believed in, in grace as God's forgiveness, which results in charity or love, which results in merit, that is God giving you merit, which results in eternal life. But look at the, the blue. The meeting of eternal life depends principally on charity. That's doing acts of charity, love. Our merit is the secondary cause of what God gives us. A man merits an increase of grace by each and every meritorious action, but he cannot merit the first grace. So what sounds heretical is really him saying the first grace, we are saved by God's grace alone, God's doing that. What you do after that, it kind of fits. He's saying you've been given grace. It should result in acts of charity, which God rewards us. We believe that. We certainly pray for it. Or, or we might do something good, and Lord, did you see that? You saw what it did, right? Which results in eternal life? Well, no, the first grace is what results in eternal life. Uh, so th- there's things that he says in, in Aquinas' works that you go, yes, right on. And things I have to go back and read again, and I go, no, no, these visions, things like that. Went, no, that, that was so off. I feel, I feel unworthy to, to, uh, to critique somebody like him. But uh, um, anyway, I do it anyway. Never stopped me before. And then finally, of our scholastics is William of Ockham. Um, the separation of science and theology, God is completely separate from and outside of his creation. You believe that? I do. He's completely separate from and outside his creation? He has to be. He existed before it. Some of these I know. You don't, if you say the wrong answer, don't worry, you're not a heretic. I don't think. But, but th- these, are, these are thinking questions. Might be too late in the day for you to think. Not obligated to... To natural, God is not obligated to natural law. He's not. He created natural law, but he's not obligated to it. He is, however, completely obligated to logic. In other words, God cannot make a three-sided square. He cannot make a, a, a square circle. He cannot. God cannot lie. There's lots of things God cannot do. 
Don't ever think that he can't. He cannot contradict logic and reason, but he can transcend natural law because it's nothing, uh, nothing about that. I mean, that would be in a miracle. Obviously, he does. God did create natural law to govern his creation. There are truths that God has revealed to us that we cannot prove to non-believers by means of reason because they are beyond the bounds of reason. In other words, we tell people, I mean, we're explaining the Trinity to somebody. These are beyond the bounds of what we might call reasonable. We don't know a good example. There are no good examples of the Trinity. God exists eternally. One God exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How do we explain that? Um, I, my explanation is I'm a human. I have a finite mind. My basic arithmetic isn't always right. Neither is yours. I get things wrong from time to time that others might get right. How am I going to understand and transcend my natural realm to get in the, on the plane of God? I like God to be there, way far above me. This is where Wacom is going. The realm of God exists, the realm God exists in, I should say, is fundamentally different from the world we exist in. It is not possible for humans to understand the realm in which God lives. It's just not possible. We know he, he dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 18 says. He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen. Moses asked to see him. God says, you can't see me with, without dying. But we do know, according to 1 John 3, 2, I think it's 1 John 3, 2, that when we die, we shall be like him. Why? We will see him as he is. That's right. We will see him. We can't now. So Occam's spot on. What is reality like? Occam says this. There's God outside of reality. There's all reality. All reality is outside the physical universe because all reality is not within it. Logic and natural laws govern all reality. Man is within the physical universe. But man cannot reason his way to God. He can know there's a creator by looking at the creation. But he needs revelation. He needs God's word. He needs Jesus to become, God to become flesh in Jesus to explain things. God must reveal himself to man. This is William of Ockham. Aquinas says this, all reality is within the real world. Logic and natural laws govern all reality. Man is within that world. God is within that world. And man can reason his way to God. That's Aquinas. I'm with Occam. Occam is out. God is outside of it. Aquinas thinks Christian philosophers should be able to convince pagan philosophers through the use of natural reason. Occam thinks there are things Christian believe that they will never be able to prove to non-Christian philosophers. Occam is living in the real world. Occam talked to more people than philosophers, for sure. Why is it important? Well, people who follow Aquinas believe that whether we learn truth from science or the Bible, it's the same truth. Truth is truth, I admit, but there are no different truths. Truth is truth. The Bible properly interpreted and science properly done will agree. We agree with that in Aquinas. It is sometimes necessary to modify our understanding of a biblical passage because of the truths we have learned from science. So you grew up in a, in a world where it said the, the earth is 4.6 billion years old, the universe we live in is over 15 billion years old, and there's no way the Bible can be true that God created it in six days. That's what you learned there. There's no way to put those together. People who follow William of Ockham believe the truths governed by natural logic in this universe are fundamentally different from the truths of God's realm. The Bible and science will sometimes not agree, at least the science that people, what people call science. We should never modify our understanding of a biblical passage because of scientific findings of the day. Take a look at the overhead. You've got, I know it's smaller print, but I've got the creation of Adam and one of AA. What do you think that means? One year after Adam. <laughs> I know, it is funny. <laughs> Birth of Noah, and you'll just have to trust me on these dates. Birth of Noah in 1056, uh, 1,056 years after Adam. The flood occurred 1656 years uh, after Adam. Arphaxad was born, Abraham born, Isaac born, Jacob born. Jacob goes to Egypt in 2239 after Adam. The exodus from Egypt in 2669 after Adam. It's actually 1446 BC, but we're doing this after Adam. Solomon starts the temple. Uh, you've got 1 Kings 6.1 says that he begins to build this temple. Uh, it's 980 B.C. It's really 
more specifically, it's about 966 BC, but put it at 980. That means that the creation of the world, when we go back, and all of these men and their line, their, their numbers are given, how long they lived. We go back to the earth beginning, being created around 4000 BC. That's crunching the numbers of the Bible. Now, that's completely different than what the world tells us. What do you do? What they call science. Contradicts truths learned from, and, and I'm obviously putting in quotations, truths learned from modern science. I don't buy it. Why is it important? Uh, there are three possible reasons to, to the observation that the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old and science says it's billions of years old. In response one, inspired by Aquinas, would be that we are probably not interpreting the Bible correctly. There must be something like a gap theory or a day-age theory that explains why the Bible does not mean what it appears to be saying. Okay, Aquinas would do option two, would say something along the lines, we're probably not doing our science properly. If we really understood the scientific data correctly, we would understand that the world is not billions of years old. So it's one or the other in Aquinas' way of thinking. But Occam says this, it's not surprising that science contradicts God's revelation. Science can never prove truths about God or ontology, first things. God has revealed to us that the earth is not that old, but there is no way I can prove this to a non-believer. In other words, no one was there in the beginning when that singularity, that proposed singularity was there, and no one was there when God created the heavens and the earth, not even Adam and Eve. But this God who must exist has given a book and told us, here's what happened. I'm going with that. And there's not a shred of scientific evidence, real scientific evidence, that says it's different. There are scientific theorems and ideas that say the world is billions of years old, but they're based on the idea that there is no God. By the way, I mean, you can't dig up, you've said, maybe you've seen people, heard people say, well, this fossil was dug up and it's hundreds of thousands or millions of years old. You can't date these fossils, folks. Fossils don't have a date on them. They usually find them, if they find them, if the layers of the, of the earth are like this and they find it down here, They've already labeled this down here, this layer down here, at 10 billion years old. So there it is. Okay, it's 10 billion years old. Not like they pulled it up and they put it through a, a test and said, oh, this says it's 10 billion years old. That's impossible. The amazing thing is you can watch there are active volcanoes today, for instance, in Hawaii. Active volcanoes that are spewing up new rocks coming up out of the ground hardening and going through a testing sequence that says they're, they're hundreds of thousands of years old. No, they're one day old. There it is. I mean, there's no, it's, it's just silliness. So there's no way. The old World Book Encyclopedia used to say, uh, still does say, it says that fossils are dated by, the, by the, the earth in which they're found. On the other side, it says the earth is dated by the fossil which exists in it. That's called circular reasoning. So there's no way to do that. It can't be, can't be done. It, it comes down to a worldview. I believe the earth is old, therefore this. I believe the earth is young, therefore that. You can't have death before Adam and Eve sinned. Death came because of what? Sin. Sin came on the sixth, or after, after man was created on the sixth day. So if you've got all of these, if Adam and Eve live here, and they're, stand, they're sitting on an earth full of fossils that have died, that contradicts the Bible. Atheists and evolutionists will make fun of Christians who buy into that. They want you to believe what they believe, but not hold to Christianity too. You can't have both. You cannot, without contradicting yourself, believe in evolution and call yourself a Bible-believing Christian. can't. That's two different things. It's not reasonable. In the high Middle Ages, Christians like Anselm began to investigate just how much we can learn by reason alone. Some, like Abelard, believe that reason can prove anything and should be the basis of our faith. Aquinas argued that, re that revealed truth cannot contradict truth learned by reason. And Occam argued that some things God has revealed will be at odds with philosophers, and there's no way to convince pagans we're right. I think Occam had it better than the rest, but that's just my opinion. The exaltation of reason practiced by people like Abelard and Aquinas is the beginning of the worship of reason that has prevailed in our Western society. All right. In the last five minutes, the poor preacher movement. You ever heard of the poor preacher movement? As more and more people became literate, and could read the Bible or reason about theology, a movement sprang up, which some people refer today as the poor preacher movement. Uh, it's called Mendicants of the Middle Ages. In the 1000s and 1100s, a class of mobile merchants emerged in Europe who traded goods or services for cash. This is on a different plane than these scholastics. Uh, these mendicants, which is a word that means beggars, 
They were clergy or preachers. They traveled from town to town, preaching to merchants and their customers. Monks and nuns planted new communities in pagan areas throughout the high Middle Ages. They farmed and built relationships with non-believers, resulting in pagans often inquiring about the true God. So they're going around the countryside. They may not be scholastic. They may not be a Thomas Aquinas. While those guys are in their monasteries talking and arguing, these guys are out preaching the word. Both are needed. There were, among the Catholics, there were those like Francis of Assisi and the Franciscans. Uh, the evangelical ones are, give or take, be Peter de Bries, the Henricans, and the Waldenses. Waldensians, heretical ones of the Bogomils and the Cathari. Um, Francis of Assisi, you've heard of him, no doubt. Uh, Assisi is a little town north of Rome. He was a soldier and the son of a very wealthy moth, uh, moth cloth merchant. After hearing Jesus speak in Matthew 10, 8 to 10, where he sends the disciples out, don't collect anything, don't take anything with your trip, no, no extra pair of clothes, no extra pair of sandals, no staff. Once he read that, he was moved, uh, he removed his lavish clothes in front of a bishop and embraced a life of poverty. And he seemed to, I mean, love his heart, but he seemed to worship poverty. He didn't even want the people that joined in his monastery, he didn't want him to have a, a, the word of God, um, no money. If anyone came along and gave them money, nothing, ever, just nothing. And he loved it. He said to him, I'm married to Lady Poverty. Um, as that order grew, uh, the Franciscans changed, but Francis got permission from Pope Innocent III, who would be the most powerful pope that ever lived, to form a new order of monks called the Mendicant Friars, later known as the Franciscans. Uh, the friars were different from monks in that they were to renounce riches, literally to own nothing, receiving their food and shelter from others, to be good in the world, doing good, works and preaching, uh, earning their way into heaven as they believed. Then you've got more the, uh, the heretical movement, the Cathari. They were rebelling against the sinfulness of the Roman Catholic Church. Their names means the pure, uh, also called the Albigensians from the name of the city in Albi there in uh, just east of, of Italy. The Cathari were a dualistic sect, believing that the Roman Catholic Church is the church of the devil and that theirs alone is the true church. You see that people don't change throughout history. There's still churches today. I mean, the Church of Christ thinks they're the only ones in heaven today. They're the only ones. This dualism led them to renounce everything they considered worldly, sex, meat, wealth. They concentrated or were concentrated in southern France. The Pope enlisted the aid of the northern French nobility to exterminate them. The Pope. Kill them. They defended fortresses like these for many years but were eventually killed off. Just mountains, crags in the rock. Peter de Bries and the Henricans were uh, in Lausanne. Um, the mendicants of the Middle Ages, the Waldingians, got to love these the best. They were actually before any of the rest. Peter Waldo was their leader. He was a traveling merchant in France. Uh, in 1173, Waldo committed his life to Christ, sold his possessions, and financed the French translation of the New Testament. He was a wealthy merchant from Lyon, France, and gathered a group of mendicant preachers called the Poor Folk of Lyon. The Waldingians closely studied the scriptures and rejected both purgatory and the Pope's supreme power. This is a, a reformation before the Reformation. And according to the poor folk, we believe the Apostles' Creed. There is no other mediator beyond God the Father except Jesus from 1 Timothy 2.5. Uh, I would say the Waldingians were a Bible church movement back in their day. They had the Bible translated into the local language. The Inquisition and the Crusade both attempted to destroy the Waldingians. And they lived at the same time as the Catharium, were strong in the same area, and were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church. Some Waldensians survived to the time of the Reformation when they were lost within the Reform movement. And here's what they look like today. There's still some. This is a group from either South or North Carolina. So what we've learned, some people come through. We've got a scholastic movement. We've got a poor preacher movement. The church grows. It moves. It's spreading around. There's some really bad stories, some funny stories, some good stories. Some amazing stories and a lot of visions people have along the way that we're not sure if they're right, wrong, or, or just crazy. But uh, we have those people in our church today. We don't know if they're right, wrong, or just crazy. Lord, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for the study of history. Thank you for uh, speaking to us. I pray that you would if, you, if, uh, if we leave here tonight. Uh, maybe we, we wonder, what was this all about? We didn't open the word. And yet we studied the history of the church. I pray, Lord, that we would become, as, as being part of the history of the church in our day and age, may we be faithful to the text. May we be faithful to, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would give us, uh, first and foremost, the knowledge of your word, the acceptance of your word. 
and, and the reason and the ability and the logic to explain it, all the while trusting you. You are the one who saves. We may present, but it is you. Salvation belongs to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 